Dotnet Rocks, episode 1022. Recorded Tuesday, August 5th, 2014. And they're off. It's another show, another .NET Rocks. Here we go. Tell me you're not excited. I am very excited. Did I, I did I tell you that I was at Microsoft offices and Damian Edwards saw me and grabbed me by the shoulders and yelled at me about getting the next Fusion show done as soon as possible. Right, because there's so much stuff we left out. Well, and I, and I this is the first time we've done the geek out where we figured out in advance there's going to be three shows. Mm-hmm. You know, in the Fission show, I thought there was only going to be one, and then there was another one, and then there was another one. This time, by the time my notes were together, it's like, oh, crap, this is three shows. So I guess we cliffhangered the first show a bit. Yeah. So, yeah, there's Damien saying, you left me hanging. I need more. <laughs> I need more. Well, you got it, Damien. Here we go. Here's more Richard's brain coming at you. <laughs> <laughs> But before we get into that, I have a better known framework for you. Awesome. Hit me. It has nothing to do with the framework, of course, because this is a geek out show. Yeah. What it has to do with is capitalizing on your paranoia. Oh, lovely. Tinyurl.com slash water gravity filter. Huh. And that brings you to Amazon.com, where it's really a product called the MSR Autoflow Gravity Filter. Now, you've heard of these camping and survival water filters where you can go to a pond or something and then, you know, squeeze water into a jug and it presses it through a filter. Yeah, reverse osmosis filter. Reverse osmosis filter gets rid of bacteria, gets rid of particulate and other lots of harmful protozoa and all sorts of crazy stuff. So yeah. this, you put the water in a bag goes through the filter and into your bottle. So there's no pumping, and uh, it works at 1.75 liters per minute. Wow. So, you know, when the zombie apocalypse comes and your water gets shut off for a week, you know, let's say you live in, I don't know, Toronto or Detroit. I'm, I don't know why I'm saying those yeah, particular. Yeah, uh, we're trying to make people angry. I mean, you know, I don't just say, for example, that your water gets shut off for some reason. Uh and you're near a source, let's call it a spring, a pond, whatever, you just go scoop up some water, let it drip through this thing and into your jugs, and you've got fresh water. Cool. So, you know, because in the spirit of nuclear paranoia, which, you know, we, we are highly catering to. No, yes, I'm just I, I would point out for the record, <laughs> this kind of filtration will not remove radioactive contamination course, from your water. Of course it won't. And that's a very, very important point. <laughs> However, it will save you in a zombie apocalypse, So, <sighs> okay. which, of course, is on everyone's mind these days. Okay. <laughs> I, for some reason, I don't know why. Uh, I love that the CDC even did an announcement around zombie apocalypse. <laughs> like, come on. These people have gone zombie crazy. Yeah, it's a, it's a thing. It's, you know, it's, it's, I think it's the replacement for the Cold War. Uh, maybe. You know, in some sense. That we, you know, what do you mean replacement? The Cold War is alive and well, Richard. Yes. It's, I don't know about that, but it's got something going on. Yeah, something's happening. All right, enough of that. That's, uh, I thought it was a very cool thing, and I bought one. I totally agree. Yeah. That is cool. And good to have. Who's, uh, who's talking to us, my friend? Grabbed a comment off the first Fusion Power Geek Out. That's 1013. Mm-hmm. A lot of show numbers. This is from Diane Wilson, who says... 
Uh, fabulous geek out. I'm looking forward to the follow on fusion shows as well as your suggested astrophysics show. After all, we are made of stardust. Mm. Or is it that we're made of nuclear waste? It's the same thing, right? <laughs> mm, yeah. Okay. Fusion it all, waste. It all comes down to molecules and that's about it. Well, and you know, and to Diane's point in the, the conversation we had before, we we take for granted that when you stick a new proton into an atom, you're making a totally different substance. Yeah, it's a new product. You know, we mentioned this in the nuclear weapon show when they started manufacturing plutonium. That was the first time that material had existed. Right. They had to learn everything about how that metal behaved mm. after they made it. Mm. The transmutation, I mean, this is the stuff of alchemy. We actually do that. And every star is an alchemist. It is making new elements all of the time. Mm-hmm. But Diane continues, your discussion on big science was, in a word, sobering. The international collaboration aspect is one concern, making projects far more expensive and high risk. One of the essential aspects of project management is risk mitigation. And that seems to be totally lost here. But you don't need to go international to see how big science can destroy progress. As examples, NASA's budget has been eaten alive by the James Webb Telescope and the Space Launch System, and yet both have been underfunded, poorly managed, and seriously delayed. The James Webb may eventually result in great imaging, but at the same time, adaptive optics have advanced to the point where Hubble-quality images are being possible on ground space telescopes. Yeah. Uh, And to that token... Diane, you know, James Webb is several order of magnitude better than Hubble. It's also an infrared telescope. It's a different critter. Maybe we should do a whole show around this thing. It is massive. But I do agree it's been grossly underfunded. And again, the politics of dig science have really hurt in the sense of so much of the scientific development has been done while the thing was actually being built rather than actually figuring out the science first because of the time horizons that the politicians demand for a product like this. So, you know, you get into these crazy squeezes. The space launch system I have uh, serious issues with uh, because it is a political football. And there's there's plenty of NASA who don't even really want it. You know, there's an argument as to whether this thing's even necessary when there's so much commercial lift. And I'm looking at you, SpaceX, coming (laughs) up that... Sort of like, why are we they still in the rocket business? Stay in the science business. You know, the precursor to NASA was NACA, and their job was to do the science around making aircraft practical, but they didn't build aircraft. Why weren't they back doing that? Wait, we're doing a different show, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Okay, let me uh, calm down. Second nuclear yeah. power. Right. Fusion power. Yeah, right, right, right. right. Geek Uh, And meantime, NASA's real science missions are dying off. They are running out of plutonium for deep space missions. That's a great conversation piece. We should do something about that at some point. And funding for new science missions have been drying up for years. It's great to see science returns from projects like Cassini, Curiosity, Messenger, and others. But in the next couple of years, the last of these messages will start their science mission. That's New Horizon, Juno, Dawn at Ceres, and so forth. And there's practically nothing beyond that. You're not wrong. Like, we haven't lifted anything new recently because the funding's been eaten up by the James Webb Telescope and the Space Launch System. Mm-hmm. We see the same thing in our industry, too. And this is one of the things that I got really excited about in this whole exploration of fusion and big science and so forth is these parallels to software development. Right. Microsoft had Longhorn, Apple had Copeland, IBM had its future systems, all of which failed and all of which devoured budgets, talent, other projects, and the sanity of their companies. It's agile versus waterfall dichotomy, supersized. And I think there's more to it than that, that it's just the, the 
you have to do the things differently when projects get this big. Right. Anyone who has been in this industry for a while will have seen this at a smaller scale many times. That as projects get bigger, they get more troubled, not less. And, you know, it's not just software and it, and it isn't just this. It's, yeah. It's everything. I mean, yeah. any good idea. And think of all of the really good ideas that have been expressed by mankind throughout history. You know, they start out with the best of intentions and they start out being very, very popular. They get so popular that they get big, they get politicized. Uh, you know, you know what I'm talking about here? Yeah. Uh, they get politicized, and then they get completely twisted. And then the the goal is not to uh, is not the message or the in, the original intent, but the goal is the survival of the group that supports it. Yeah, and, that, and that's where it gets really troublesome. Is that you know we're no longer focused on delivering; we're focused on staying in business. Yeah. Add in the difficulties that many companies impose on themselves by outsourcing and the equivalent of ITER's international scope with all its scheduling, communication, compatibility, and politics that can destroy productivity while increasing risk. And I'd love to see a show on the larger aspects of project management as well as how they relate to software projects. Yeah. Okay. And I actually answered Diane uh, when she shortly after she wrote this thing and talked a little bit about the problems of the U.S. government procurement, a point to the F-35 and... Uh, you know, this idea that we end up with lots of motivations, but only one of which is actually getting the thing built. Yeah. So, Diane, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. Hey, if you're an experienced developer or a project manager looking for a change of pace, consider working with me and my world-class team at AppVNext. Building the next generation Internet of Things and new apps. Are you in? Check out appvnext.com, then go ahead and send me your resume. All right, Richard, where do we start? Where do we leave off in the last show? So I feel like we sort of left off at a fairly dark place because I was focused on the big science elements of ITER and NIF. Right. But I also set the stage there for two very different, one would say almost oppositional approaches to doing fusion. You know, in, in NIF, we're using lasers to do inertial confinement. So we're basically taking a pellet of deuterium trinium and blasting it with a massive amount of energy to literally have a nanosecond of fusion release. And in the ITER approach, the tokamak approach, we're doing a long-lived plasma. They're trying to get up to many minutes of runtime, which is very, very hard to do to contain plasma well enough to keep it around that long. Yeah, it's kind of hot. It's extraordinary hot, and it's you know it's an order of magnitude hotter than the sun itself because it's so small. Right. You know, there's a reason stars are the size they are, and in the big vacuum well that they're in, so that they can actually you know work efficiently. It's very challenging to make this small, and of course the consequence of them building this out is that they've built bigger and bigger and bigger versions of it, and then both those projects are pure science projects. There is no effort being made to capture any of the energy. They are purely measuring the output of the fusion reactions they're creating to see if they're even releasing more energy than what they put in. Hmm. And so far, the answer has always been no. And when they and then their reaction to that has been to get bigger still. So it doesn't the, make a lot of sense, does it? Well, the problem is that the money is getting so extreme and the complexity is getting so extreme. And we and so we have a new set of factors starting to be introduced. Right. Uh, but those are government level projects and they tend to be bigger and more complicated because of the 
bureaucracy that it's built around getting government money, having politicians involved. And and we've had plenty of successful projects like that, uh, but there's degrees of success. I mean, the Large Hadron Collider, I think, is a, a, an example of government success, admitting that it was also about 50% over budget and several years delayed and blew itself up the first time it ran. And really, they seemed a little bit hesitant to say that they had found the Higgs boson, didn't, weren't they? Well, and I would say in good conscience. That's professional science stuff there. Yeah. It looked right, but until you've run it a few times and had other people confirm your results, how can you be sure? So, right. I mean, I appreciated their hesitancy because that's what real science looks like. Yeah, yeah. And it's pretty sure now that it worked. Right. Which is about as good as it gets. Okay. The International Space Station, which is, you know, 10, 20 times more expensive and took 10 years to complete. And I adore it. But it was it actually a good use of money? Mm. Is it actually producing science that's relevant? And it's harder to point to that because it doesn't have a single mission. It's working on a much larger scope of things. Right. You know, they're already talking about life after the space station. What people haven't got their head around yet is 10, 15 years from now, they're going to re-enter the International Space Station. They're going to break it apart and send it back into the atmosphere. As a total aside, did you see that uh, NASA is sending up another rover to Mars? That's This one's going to turn CO2 into oxygen. Yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. It is cool. I and mean, maybe we're due for some more space geek. Yeah, I too, think we are. I want to get through the fusion side of these things. So I want to talk about a very different class of projects. Okay. Uh, and this, there's an arc here that starts. So we started with the big science, the most credible scientists, the largest governments, the largest amounts of money, and a very contrasting approach, right? Yeah. Magnetic confinement versus inertial confinement. Now, let's drop down a level of funding. Sometimes government involved, sometimes not. And much more hybrid approaches. So how about using magnetic confinement and inertial confinement mm. together? Mm. Okay, so you can actually mix these things together. And also starting to address issues that both NIF and ITER ignore. The two biggest ones to me are, what do you do about the neutrons, dudes? You know, <laughs> it's the neutrons, stupid. That's well, the sign they have over their desk. And, and, and corollary to that is, how do you actually capture the power from the fusion reaction? Right. Which it seems to me would probably be the first thing that you want to do. It's like, all right, we have to assume we're going to have power out of this. Now, how do we capture? I can't. When you told me that, I, cu I couldn't believe that that they, that was not included in the original design. Well, and it, and it just sort of speaks to the fact that those projects are pure science projects, right? Mm -hmm. That that's what's important. Now, it's not that there hasn't been research done on energy collection methods mm -hmm. around fusion. There have. They're just not part of these projects, mm. right? So, uh, for example, Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, where the NIF was built, actually uh, recognized the challenges in doing power collection. And so they were working on... There's basically two approaches, right? There's a direct, a direct energy collection and there's in, an indirect energy collection approach. Okay. So a direct energy approach would be, can I literally collect the high energy ions that are being made from the fusion event? Mm. So, you know, the whole idea here is you poured a whole bunch of energy into those atoms. They fuse and are releasing even more energy, which certainly will keep the plasma going. But now you can bleed off some of that energy yeah. and actually collect it 
directly. And there's a bunch of weird technology around trying to do that collection uh, that they experimented with. They got great names like the Venetian blind method. <laughs> and, but they're basically taking different energy level of ions and dumping that energy. Because in the end, what is that energy? But electricity, really. So this this hybrid approach or these smaller versions of uh, fusion experiments are uh, you really, we really haven't talked about yet, but have were did these come about after the ITER and all of the big ones? No, they've been pretty much executing in parallel. Oh. One would say these might even be the losers. You know, huh. the ones that couldn't get big government funding, huh. they're, they're funded in smaller areas. They, a lot of them are based on science that is easily as old. You know, uh, the Tokamak designs from the fifties. Wow. Right. But, you know, you talk about magnetized target fusion and, uh, and dense plasma focus fusion, some of these alternative approaches, they are easily 30, 40 year old hypotheses. Based on the same caliber of scientists going, you know, that's a really hard way to go about it. Maybe we should go an easier way. Yeah. And there's a few factors on, on what we're doing here. How do we capture neutrons? How do we convert energy? Are we fusing the right thing? You know, we keep using deuterium trinium as the fuser. Mm. And there's a reason for that, right? These are both heavy isotopes of hydrogen. They toss neutrons very readily and they fuse very readily. They are much more fusible okay. than a lot of other elements. But there are other candidates, including some that are aneutronic. In other words, no neutrons. No neutrons. Yeah. But I'm jumping ahead. Let's start with magnetized target fusion. Okay. So magnetized target fusion, original work done in the 1970s. The idea here is we're still going to use deuterium trinium, mm -hmm. but our containment vessel is a big sphere filled with liquid lithium and lead. So it, wait a minute, is it lined with lead, made of lead, no. or filled with lead? Filled with liquid lead. So we're using a liquid metal container. Uh, what what is the outside container? Of so that the tank metal? is a high tensile alloy that can tolerate the temperature that will keep lead and lithium melted. Which, admittedly, both lead and lithium melted at a relatively low temperature. Okay, but wait, it gets weirder. All right, and that's one of the problems with this. And I tell you, the. <laughs> the thing I've spent more time on than anything else is which of these is snake oil yeah. and which of these is feasible. Right. Okay. Like are, could actually be real because the websites look the same. Well, <laughs> uh, I guess it comes down to what have they done? It's been around since the 70s. What have the they 70s. actually built? What, yeah. What and have I they think, actually done? And also it's interesting to look at the funding for this. Okay. Mm. So, uh, Curiously, the, the company I'm particularly talking about with Magnetized Target Fusion is a company called General Fusion, which is based in Burnaby, which is one suburb away from here. Yeah. And so they have a liquid metal tank of lithium and lead that they spin magnetically. So they're using a magnetic field to get that liquid revolving to the point where the center forms a, a cylindrical cavity. So imagine metal spinning so fast, just like you do with water. Right. You swirl water around in a bucket, you get a hole in the center. Right. So same effect. You get it spun so that there's literally an, a cylindrical cavity from one end to the other of the sphere. Okay. Of mol and you've got molten metal all around it. Yeah. All right? Yeah. Then you fire puffs of deuterium and trinium. So this is your hydrogen isotopes, which are naturally gases. Yep. They've been heated already. But as they're shot into they're the be, center of this sphere, they're and be the heated sphere, some more. Pretty big, yes. Now they're gonna they become a plasma. Yeah. 
So we're back to a plasma. Nowhere near as hot as the kinds of plasmas that you want to get out of a tokamak, because we're not doing all of those same heating techniques, just, but hot, just they are plasma. Just how big is this sphere? Uh, about 20 foot across. Wow, that's it's gotta big, be heavy. It's not that big. Too, uh, just enormously heavy. But wait. Uh, wait a minute. It and gets this weirder. Is, this is in your neighborhood, basically? It's down the road, man. Did you go check it out? I No, they didn't return my calls. Oh. But, you know, maybe after we get the... Maybe just not come up in a, you know, in a, in a foil suit and hat and knock on the door and see what yeah. happens. Let's see what happens. So the, all they're trying to do is encapsulate that plasma for a few, not even a whole second, just for a few moments, a few hundred microseconds, hmm. at that moment when the plasma has met in the center, so they're shooting it from two directions, yep. plasma comes from two directions, yep. there's something that's really interesting. You'll see this over and over again in this class of projects, hmm. that they fire plasmas through a magnetized chamber so that it meets in the center. The moment of that impact, and again, microseconds, right. over 200 pneumatic pistons surrounding the tank on all sides fire simultaneously what? to create an acoustic shockwave through the molten metal. What? Remember, this is not the snake oil one, dude. Are you kidding me? This is the viable one? <laughs> but wait. <laughs> At that moment, when all the, so the wave perfectly converges on a centralized point containing the DT uh, plasma, there's a fusion detonation. And so what you're saying is, these pistons basically knock against the side of the sphere. They press into the 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 uh, metal exactly. They create a shockwave through the molten metal. So if this thing is spinning, though, and how fast is it spinning? Fast enough to create an a a, a, pretty, a vacuum cylinder cylinder in the center. Pretty damn fast, in other words. Relatively fast. And yes. and are these pistons spinning on it as well? No, no. The, the whole sphere isn't spinning. The metal, the liquid metal, spinning inside the oh, sphere. Oh, the sphere, sphere is, is not spinning. Yeah. No, the metal inside has been magnetically spun up. Magnetically spinning. Okay. That's right. I pictured a sphere twenty feet wide spinning around, and no. I thought. That's crazy. Well, now you've got to imagine a sphere that sphere that looks like a porcupine. It's got all these cylinders sticking out of it all yeah, around it. Right. And the tricky part is these are pneumatic pistons. They have to fire at exactly the same millisecond. It's crazy. To create this perfect compression wave that actually creates a detonation. Now, uh, the leader of this project, a guy named Michael LaBerge, who has a TED Talk from this year. They did TED's not what it used to be. Mm. This is the new TED, the one that they actually did in Vancouver. Mm. Um, but it's a good talk and worth listening to. The problem whenever you listen to any fusion talk anywhere is that they're so busy on talking, hyping up the we need fusion thing. Right. They don't spend a lot of time on the science. It's like, I get it. We need fusion. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about your science. Right. But here's where the... So you got to get over the crazy of I'm going to fire pneumatic pistons. I'm going <laughs> to create this wave. I'm going to create a fusion discharge. Okay. I'm so when that happens, now it's DT fuel. You're going to have a burst of neutrons and a bun and it's going to be absorbed by the lead. So yeah. you're containing the neutrons, and when it's absorbed by the liquid lead, it heats that lead up. Yeah. So all of a sudden you have a containment approach. It's non-destructive to the system. And we talked about this with ITER. Right, that right. ITER, that Tokamak, that that billion dollar donut they're building out of tungsten alloy, yeah. it's going to be disintegrated by the neutrons. Yeah, 
This thing is capturing those neutrons for heat. It's slowing them down, actually capturing them so that it collects the heat. So you should be able to take that molten metal and pump it through a secondary coil to actually boil water and spin a turbine. Like, there's a plan here right. that could potentially work. They are talking about causing that process, the spinning the fluid, pumping the plasma, mm-hmm. detonating the pulse, once a second. So wow. at one hertz, bang, 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 bang. Jeez. To generate enough heat to make it worthwhile. Now, how credible is this really? Yeah, I don't know. So, Have they done it? They have. The first experiments run in small scale were done back in 2006. And the results were good enough that guys like Jeff Bezos have invested in them. As of 2013, they'd raised $45 million. Some of it, it was about $10 million in government funding. But the rest are uh, serious investors. So... And and wait a sec. Now, um, all right, talk about energy in and energy out. Let's right. talk about efficiency here. Well, that's the thing is they're still underwater too, right? They have not generated no fusion approach anywhere at any time ever has generated more energy than it's consumed ever, so, much less actually capturing that energy for use. So there you go. So just the truth, right? The truth of fusion is nobody has reached break even, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you could talk about the Tokamak called JET, the joint uh, European Taurus, that put in 17 megawatts of power and emitted 16 megawatts. It's pretty they close. They didn't capture it. They did not. You're never going to get 100% capture. Mm-hmm. All of the reading I've done on all the crazy ways to collect power, the highest they've gotten is in the 60, 70% range, which is pretty good. Compared to even regular power plants, you know, coal's not that efficient. Yep. You're burning coal. A certain amount of heat is just lost. You don't get to boil water with all of it. So yep. it's not that outrageous. It's just sort of a recognition of, you know, you can't say we're close because you put in 17 megawatts and got out 16. Mm-hmm. You got to put in 17, you know, and this is what they're offering with Eider. You're going to put in 50 and get out 500. Right. Right. Which, okay, if we get a 60% capture potential, that's 300 megawatts. Hey, we got ourselves a power plant. Right. Okay. Except I just don't believe their numbers. I really don't. Yeah. You know, that's such a catastrophic jump ahead. Mm. It just, I hope it's true. I'd like to be wrong, Mm -hmm. but it's just not founded there. So, and, you know, again, LeBurge's approach, General Fusion's approach, what I see in favor of this is there's a bunch of things that make sense. You're using lithium and lead because lead's an incredibly good neutron absorber. So you're dealing with the neutrons and capturing it as energy. Right. The lithium gets bombarded by neutrons and it makes more trinium. So you've actually got a refueling process running there as well, where you should be able to extract the trinium, prep it for fuel, and run it again. Like, there's a lot good here. Uh, Do we lose any lead or any lithium? Without a doubt, right? But that's part of the process. You know, you're you're going to use up some of that, and that's you you know but, none of you this know, is free. If, if the know, rate is slow enough, though, it might actually be be manageable. manageable. And then you get back to the truth. Like I can't tell you how many videos and text I've read about fusion being clean with no radioactive byproducts. So yeah. it's like, dude, these are lies. Yeah, you bombard stuff with neutrons, you make it radioactive. Yeah, yeah, it's not in the same class. As the radioactive rods that come out of fission cores, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's not, without a doubt. It's not, they're not comparable. It's, it's low-level radiation versus high-level radiation. But it's still radiation. You're still going to have waste you need to manage. Always. That's just the truth of working with this technology. Right. You've got to deal with these consequences. The question is, are they worthwhile? 
Okay. Well, now, that I mean, was. An, I want so this one of the reasons I started here is that it's, it's got just enough crazy, but it's got real. Like, is it just me, or the <laughs> fact that there's a tech billionaire saying I'll put money into that? Is that a good thing? I yeah, I don't know. I mean, we have to question Jeff Bezos' sanity as well. <laughs> well, and apparently, you know, so he puts ten million dollars in it. The guy's a multi-billionaire. Was this pocket change? Yeah, and he's just not paying that much attention to it. Like it's not a big deal. Because over and over again, in this class of projects, I keep bumping into tech billionaires that are involved. Mm. You know, we mentioned uh, the traveling wave reactor back in the fission shows. Yeah, yeah. That the Gates and in, has invested in. Yeah. Like, it seemed, I'm, I'm starting to feel like I need to build a website about tech billionaires. Are they becoming supervillains? Because all of them <laughs> have their own power plant of some kind or another. Or, you right? know, are they just becoming you know they they want to find the next thing that nobody's looking for i mean right. isn't that the nature money? of or are what they tech billionaires do are they, are they trying to do good yeah. hey i could actually fix the planet if we could solve this thing that's worth 10 million dollars or 20 million dollars yeah i think but, they're looking for that thing to invest in that's going to change the world that nobody saw coming i, I i'm with you yeah. and, it, and there's a few other cases where you see exactly the same sort of thing so i magnetized target fusion you know, a really interesting approach. Very, to me, it feels very practical. There's power collection, there's damage management. They've got a refueling process. Mm. It's a question of scale mm. and they've done it for such a small amount of money. Mm-hmm. So say we've got, they've maybe spent, they've got about $60 million they've spent so far. Yeah. Right. Or, or they've got so far. They may not even have spent it all yet. That's, you know, a tenth. What's been, or even a hundredth, what's been spent on ITER? Mm-hmm. So, to, who have come this far to have a machine, and they're now dealing with the same thresholds? You know, there's an argument both ways. Like, are they do they need a billion dollar investment to scale it sufficiently? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think so because they've come so much further for so much left, and they solved a bunch of additional problems. To me, this feels more engineering, less science. Okay, you follow? Yep. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is. It must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to put on my tinfoil hat, take $10 million in small bills, and set it on fire. (laughs) 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 Man. (laughs) Oh, that was a fun one. No, it's time to give away the D-Experience subscription from DevExpress to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who it is, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. Nice. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Stuart Zahn. Congratulations, Stuart. Golf clap for you, sir. Yeah. And uh, no small feat. Stuart just was picked out of the thousands of members of the fan club to uh, win a D-Experience subscription from DevExpress. That's a big pile of awesome from them. Right. Hey, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, as I said before, and every show we give away good stuff like the D-Experience subscription from our sponsors, and every December we give away $5,000 worth of good stuff. 
And so, I guess we can't don't have to do the other part, do we? No, we don't. Yeah. It's like, we've I don't both, know what I'd buy for $5,000 We both anymore. answered the question. Actually, no, the last time I asked you the question, you turned the tables on me. So, I threw it back at you, didn't I? So what, what would you buy with five grand, Richard? I guess it is my turn, isn't it? Uh, you know what? I think the quadcopter technology, especially in the $5,000 class, is epically good. Yeah. Uh, somebody, a friend of mine, it was Kent Alstead, actually. I spent the weekend with him and we were talking. He's got a new workshop. He's been doing a lot of building and so forth. If I had the space like this, I'd be tinkering with robotics a lot. Yeah. And I think the, the interest in the quadcopter from a robot perspective is really interesting. That's very cool. I like that idea. Yeah. Automating quad bots with new sensors and things so that they're doing their own flight patterns, taking care of themselves and, and letting you see, you know, uh, where forest fires might be, mm. where damage to to uh, the ecology is, like getting the multispectral sensors, and that's a whole show. Some of the cool stuff coming out of NASA around multispectral is really interesting, and I think we could make it a lot cheaper and simpler to put it on small devices like that. Yeah, I I'm with you. I love the idea of putting some sensors and some IoT things on uh, quadcopters and sending them around, letting them be their own sort of autonomous vehicles. Love it. Absolutely. All right, man. So what's the second, the one that you considered to be snake oil? No, we're not going to do snake oil today. No? <laughs> no. But, uh, you know, it's fun to tell you this just to see your reaction. Because I'm so immersed in it now yeah. that it's hard for me to know. Like, I'm glad you reacted to magnetized target fusion the way you did. It's just like, okay, so it's not just me. This does seem a little bad shit. Well, crazy. you know, but I'm not a scientist, though. And some science is just weird. I yeah. mean, Hell, biology is weird. Yeah. You know, if you think the things that we do are weird, the things that nature does are even stranger. So who who knows? It it does seem strange, but you know, I'm no I'm not a scientist, so I don't, and hell, they apparently got power out of it. So So let me talk about yeah. something that almost sits in between uh, the sort of the next generation past this and or in a different going in a different direction. Okay. It's a technology called the colliding beam fusion reactor or CBFR. Okay. Now, okay. in one sense, it's got something similar to do with magnetized target fusion in the sense that it has two plasma generators at either end of a cylinder, but no molten metal, things like that. Although, you know, pieces of this will creep into. So not huge. This is not a mega big project. They say it's more like the size of a semi trailer. I think the current prototype number four from Helion is about 28 meters long. So what is that in, in, uh, um, that's 29 yards, something like that. Yeah, so 20, uh, 29 yards, so you get an idea. It's 60 feet yeah. long yeah, yeah, and and three meters high. Sort of vaguely bow tie shape. Big on the ends, narrower in the middle. Mm-hmm. Okay? And then these guys have been working for quite a while. They've, uh, they, they got power, they got money from the Department of Energy, which is the normal place you would get money from. In the case of Helion, this is the normal place you get for power plants. Department of Energy should be funding these things, uh, although they are raising other money as well. Uh, so they're using a technology uh, called a field reverse configuration torus. So this is similar to a Takamat, but substantially smaller. Uh, and it does a particular trick with magnetics. They're working with the behavior that plasma has under magnetics to keep it better bottled. But it doesn't last for very long. Again, we're only talking about fractions of a second most of the time for containing plasma. They're not trying to contain plasmas for a long time. Same fuel, we're still using deuterium-trinium with all of its problems. Remember, it gives off an awful lot of energy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, but it does, this particular technique does offer possibilities for other fuels, and we'll talk about those in a second. 
So you build up plasma at either end of this bow tie. Then you fire it using magnetic fields to accelerate the plasma towards the center. When I say accelerate, I mean fast, like 500,000 miles per hour. Wow. Like fast. Yeah. Moving. Yeah. Uh, The collision speed was 600 kilometers per second. Good Lord, man. So 1.3 million miles per hour. Now, the reason they're able to go that fast is it's in a vacuum and it's plasma. It's not actually that heavy and you're using magnetic coils to accelerate it. So you slam two plasmoids, balls of plasma at very high speed into each other in a gradually contracting magnetic bottle. Wow. So you can imagine when it gets to the center, there is a fusion detonation. Yeah. And it emits a lot of neutrons and generates a fair bit of energy, you know, all there. Now you get back to the same old problem is you have to do energy collection at the center of that bow tie. How do you capture it? And so there's lots of discussion around this sort of pulsed field approach to, to create that burst of energy. They, the, what I appreciate about these is that the scale is reasonable. They're not needing to get mega big. They know they can get more powerful coils. They're getting into the Ted and Tesla range in terms of coil power. They, but they are now, uh, the, the language that I'm seeing from these organizations, uh, I appreciate because they are talking much more engineering problems. Like they mm-hmm. care about the power collection. And one of the, the technologies they were looking at, the paper I read on it, actually used lithium beryllium fluorine salts. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. The molten salt reactor. You're damn right. Yeah. Taking that mole, so one of the reasons you use uh, lithium and beryllium in a fluorine salt combined with uranium or thorium is that the neutrons that are emitted from that aren't uh, are supported by the lithium beryllium, and you get byproducts like tritium and so forth that are useful. Mm-hmm. So now they're saying let's take the fission material out entirely, just use the light salt, and use it as the power collector. Mm-hmm. So it can pretty neatly wrap around there. Now, you could ask the same question, like, would this approach work with a traditional tokamak? Hmm. And, you know, that's a, a challenging angle on this because it's very challenging. Try and wrap the entire tokamak in a, 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 a lithium beryllium fluid is not be easy. It's a lot of area. Yeah. And it's going to have interactions with the magnets. You know, what, what they've done is they've separated the magnetic effects down so that the collision point doesn't have as many magnets around it. It's easier for us to get the fluid in, do the power collection. Yeah. Now there's another, the, and they, Helion talks about uh, a 50 megawatt power plant. They call it the fusion engine. I think they're projecting a little far into the future here. Like they still have to solve some fairly challenging problems, but I mentioned them to mention another company that is far more secretive, and that's a company called Tri-Alpha Energy. Mm. Okay. And Tri-Alpha Energy is largely run in the dark. There's basically nothing on their website, but they have published a few research papers. They're not easy to read. The interesting part about this is it gets back to funding again. They've raised $140 million, Tri-Alpha Energy. And based on their papers, without a doubt, they're doing similar technology to what Helion's doing. They're using this bow tie design to accelerate uh, plasmoids and collide them to do fusion. Okay. But having Paul Allen and Goldman Sachs as your funders, mm. and 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 then I wonder if again, am, am I being fooled here that their secretiveness makes them more appealing? Maybe. That they're hiding from, they they're sort of keeping. They, they're so good, I, they're so close. I don't know. We, I think we're gonna meet some characters in the next show that uh, 
you will will sort of negate that. I mean, well, and exactly that. This so this sense when you get into the snake oil guys, they're very public, right? And again and again, what I find is the folks that I can find good data on are the folks trying to raise money, right? right? You know, General Fusion's trying to raise money, Helion's trying to raise money. Yep. Try Alpha. If they have one hundred forty million dollars, they don't need any more money. They need to build stuff, right? And so, why would you talk about it, right? Right. Let's just focus on it. The thing that I find the most interesting about the colliding beam fusion reactor design, okay, so this using uh, FRCs to accelerate, to, to generate plasma and collide them, is you can get away from deuterotrinium. So mm. over and over again, we've talked about deuterotrinium is the easiest fuel to fuse, emits a ton of neutrons, and the neutrons are the killer issue. Right. In my mind, this is the problem, right. okay? But what if, what if, my friend, I had a fuel that I could fuse that emitted no neutrons? Right. So an aneutronic fuel. So an example. If it uh, had the same properties otherwise. So, and what are we looking for? Right. It's got to emit energy. So there's energy to collect. Yep. It's got to be fusible. Is it even physically feasible to actually create fusion to make that happen? Right. And so CBFRs, these colliding beam fusion reactors, they, because of the way they're designed, because they can concentrated a plasma separately from its acceleration and collision mm. allow us to start experimenting with other fuels. So one of the best examples I've seen is a hydrogen boron or a proton boron fuel. Okay. So boron, everyone knows what hydrogen is. And in, in, in its essence, when you're talking about hydrogen as a plasma, what do you got? You got a highly excited proton. Right. It's just a proton. Right. Okay. Nothing else. Boron, this is atomic element 11. Right. It's very common. It's relatively heavy. You know, normally when we talk about playing in fusion, we're playing with hydrogen and helium and lithium and beryllium, mm-hmm. right? But that's one, two, three, and four. So we are skipping up to 11. And the reason for skipping up to 11 is that when you slam a proton into boron with an atomic weight of 11, it will briefly form into an unstable version of carbon, and then it'll typically split into three helium a- atoms. Wow. Yeah, and we can use those helium atoms to uh, fuel our uh, pebble bed reactors. Or whatever else we want to use helium. But the big thing here is no emitted neutrons. Yeah. Right? So you've got this sort of chain reaction of I slam a proton into into boron. I have a, uh, the carbon-12 is literally fractions of seconds. It's a, it's a resonance of carbon-12, and then it emits, em, emits a high-energy particle, which is your energy, and then it drops into these three helium atoms. Wow. So, I mean, that's very exciting. The downside is you need more energy. Right. You have to, it, it's a harder element to fuse. Okay. So you have to use more, we need more force to actually emit that. But now you're essentially collecting electricity directly from the ions, which is a very clean way of doing collection as opposed to heating up lead. Mm-hmm. And you have uh, no radioactive products to wait for them to decay to. Mm-hmm. You know, relatively speaking, every not every fusion reaction is going to be perfect. You're going to occasionally get damaged ones that's going to emit some neutrons. You're going to have to manage that. But it opens an interesting door to these are the kinds of reactions when we can get to that level of heat. And it, now we're talking about getting into billion degrees plasmas. So oh, my. When you are talking about the sun, you're talking about 10 million, maybe 20 million degrees, depending on where you look on the sun. When you talk about ITER, you're talking about... 200 million degree plasma. Right. So to talk about a billion degree plasma is a little crazy, right? 
But again, you get into, there's a difference between trying to maintain 200 million degrees for minutes yeah. and trying to maintain a billion degrees for a nanosecond. Right, right. Right? It's a lot more feasible, requires a lot less energy. And if you can do good energy collection, it might be practical. So I'm pretty interested in what's going on with Helion and Trialpha. Like, that's an interesting space. And by the way, both those companies are out of Washington State. Interesting. Yeah. Um, there's a really, the University of Washington has a really large fusion program, and there's a bunch of very talented scientists down there. And I just got to think they've had lunch with Paul Allen <laughs> and or Bill Gates. Probably. I mean, Jeff Bezos lives up there too, right? Like, it, we forget yeah. where these people are, but I think it's a non-trivial part of the overall conversation. Right. Which brings us to one more approach I want to talk about, which is dense plasma focused fusion. Okay. Right. And the what's interesting to me about dense plasma focused fusion, this is a company called Lawrenceville Plasma Physics mm -hmm. out of New Jersey. All right. And their lead scientist is a guy named Eric Lerner, who's quite famous in the space. I mean, he's a very smart guy, just on the fine edge of, you know, is he crazy or is he the genius that's going to make all this work? And he's taking a very different approach to forming plasma. He's doing extremely short durations plasmas by instead of ever building a magnetic bottle of any kind, really, they're literally creating plasma under pressure so that it forms into a plasmoid. So it's almost impossible to describe. I'll include links so that folks can actually look at their design. But essentially, they have a cathode, a rod in the middle on, on a, sitting on a disc with anodes all around it. So a bunch of stalks with a big stalk in the middle. And they pot, and they pump gas in, in into a vacuum space that they heat up to a plasma, that's heated into a plasma. And then they put a bunch of energy, a bunch of electricity between those anodes and cathodes. And it collapses into a plasmoid very briefly. Okay. And the byproduct of it is because of the way that it forms, it emits a beam like a pulsar star. So it's a beam of high energy ions that you can easily collect. Wow. And it runs very briefly. And mm. there in 2012, these guys managed to make a 1.8 billion degree plasma. Oh, man. So they can fuse hydrogen boron. They can do it. That's sufficient energy. So no neutrons. Mm -hmm. Right? Like we can get rid of the neutrons. But it takes more energy to do it. It does take more energy to do it, but you're also emitting more energy at the same time. Right. So each one of these individuals, again, this would be a relatively small reactor, mm. maybe the size of a garage, okay? Mm -hmm. Relatively small. Mm -hmm. And it, the way it's running, the design looks an awful lot like a microwave generator, like a magnetron. Hmm. And so you would fire this thing repeatedly. They're talking about firing it at 330 hertz or 330 times a second. Right. Emitting, and so it's going to be emitting this steady stream of ions that you can collect. They figure with roughly an 80% power collection efficiency. Now, there's, there's the ion stream, which is one part of the power collection, but it also emits a fair number of x-rays. So you need an x-ray collector, which looks like an onion. It's just a series of layers of metal that deflect the uh, x-rays and, and collect them as electricity as well. Hmm. So now you're starting to see this thing look like a ball. But it will emit a fair bit of power. What I find impressive is they've built these things and made them run for thousands of dollars, not even millions of dollars. In fact, earlier this year, 
uh, LPP ran an Indiegogo campaign. No kidding. Which I would have contributed to if I'd known about it. These guys clearly know something about building uh, fusion science. They just don't know much about marketing. Yeah. But they raised $180,000 of a $200,000 goal they have. Now, it's Indiegogo, so they kept the money anyway. Um, but they were able to – folks are on board, and these guys are trying to build these things at a relatively small scale. They're dealing with the, and they're dealing with the neutrons effectively. They're getting hot enough. And I mean, I'm talking about the latest generation of their project, right? This is just the past couple of years, right? But they go back to the nineties. Wow. You know, again, you get this challenge. How much of this is politics and how much of this is science? Right. It seems to me like Lerner had a tough time raising money. So he skipped around from places to places. It started off as a university experience in the nineties. And then they worked with, uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And this is a whole other area, which maybe we could do a show around, but using fusion as a propulsion system for spacecraft. So the Jet Propulsion Laboratory is very interested in new engines, and they provided small amounts of funding for them to try and make, instead of making the using the plasma to collect it as energy, use it as propulsion, actually push it along. And so over a Six, seven, eight years, JPL funded a bunch of different projects within different universities, experimenting with this approach to generating it. Haven't there already been fusion-powered spacecraft? or no. is Or has it been fission-powered spacecraft? We, well, again, this could... Nuclear power in space would be an interesting show. Right, because there is there is solar energy that we can use as one catalyst, right? Yep. But then we also have the uh, radio thermal generator, which is pretty much all the nukes that's ever been in space. Yeah. It's, okay. It's, you, plutonium-239, which is naturally hot, and you use Peltier effects to collect electricity from it. And you're talking about 100 watts of power. Right. Not kilowatts or but megawatts. But then again, the, you know, once they get going, they don't need a lot of they power. They run continuously 24 hours a day. And yeah, so there's yeah. like the uh, uh, Curiosity on Mars uses batteries during the day because it assumes a lot of power. And overnight, those batteries are recharged by that radio thermal generator right right that's that's basically the system that keeps the machine warm enough that it doesn't freeze and actually recharges the batteries cool what lpp is talking about is a safe fuel in a small format generating a reasonable amount of power you know nothing massive so with that design you're talking about a 15 to 20 megawatt reactor Mm. the size of a small building uh that pretty much emits no uh byproducts at all right it's capturing the there might be a little bit in the way of x-ray radiation which is a little frightening but there's ways to bottle that up Uh it doesn't naturally have neutron byproducts uh it shuts down very cleanly you know fusion barely runs so it's not hard to shut it off it doesn't have that much byproduct heat they talk about um you know the the breakdown of of the boron fuel into helium means that it'll be cold in in a few hours right you can and you can actually do work on it if you needed to Interesting. It's the only the thing I would say negative about LPP is if it was that good an idea, why can't they raise money? Well, it gets back to our original problem, isn't it? That you need it that it takes more energy in than it than it produces. Well, that's true of all fusion. Yet right. some of these fusion projects raise billions of dollars. Some of them raise hundreds of millions of dollars. Some of them raise tens of millions of dollars. This guy's working looking for a million bucks still. Well, I mean, is that are they raising that money on the promise that they will become efficient everybody's promising yeah right that's that's the goal of everyone it's like we just need to go one more step and this will be the one right and it can't there's nobody saying hey we're three iterations away 
Yeah. Right? They're saying, no, we're right there. If only we had a little more money so we could do this, it would all work out. And they've been selling the Takamak on that for like 50 years. Right. Right? Mm. So we we're back to the same issue here of, do you believe them? Do you really think, you know, admittedly, every one of the companies I've talked about so far has built something that makes fusion, but it doesn't make electricity. Right. Right. Or at least not enough to actually make it practical yet. So that's the race here. I, but tell me I'm wrong. Don't these things feel more credible than what's happening over at ITER and NIF? Well, yeah, just because they, they're smaller scale and, uh, easier to um it seems like they have uh smaller iterations you know right and that they are dealing with the whole problem they're actually trying to generate electricity yeah you know that where the other projects just aren't like i look at the billions and billions spent on iter and say if i could take one of those billions mm. and split it between these three companies yeah it would be several times more money than any of them have got right you know, I don't know if they could spend it well. It's kind of hard when you land it with millions of dollars to right. actually get it spent intelligently. Right. But it also is interesting to me, you know, the possibility here of that that's where they end up working with these tech billionaires. Now, and again, LPP, Eric Lerner, hasn't got a tech billionaire buddy. So right. he hasn't gotten $20 million from a Jeff Bezos or a Gail Gates or anybody like that. Mm. So for, I'm, I'm, one of the reasons I brought him up last is I think this is the guy who's a bridge into the next show, which okay. is really about getting into some of the crazy stuff in fusion. Cold this, fusion. And we're going to have to talk about cold fusion, which is a poison name now. Yeah. I, I was looking up names uh, after what happened with cold fusion. I was looking up names for cold fusion. Would you like to hear a list of some of the variations <laughs> on the name? Sure. How about condensed matter nuclear science? <laughs> or lattice-assisted nuclear reactions? Uh. Or chemically-assisted nuclear reactions? Or low-energy nuclear reactions? Uh. They all are actually cold, cold fusion. fusion. And I'm not going to poo-poo cold fusion. I am going to say... It's a, I spent a bunch of time sorting it out, and I think I've got a few pieces that seem real and seem not, and we'll talk about the real problems of that next one. All right, Richard. Thanks, as always. You bet, buddy. Uh, Lots of fun. All right. I can't wait for the comments, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a...